Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast. Where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Hi, everybody. So this is an extremely powerful and personal conversation with artist Christina Wong. She is a satirist and she speaks of politics and she speaks of really wonderful but heavy stuff. And some of that includes violence towards the Asian culture. And if you don't hold that space right now, go ahead, press pause, catch back with us later. Thanks so much. When was the first time that you noticed and how did it impact you when you saw Hello Kitty did not have a mouth? Uh, <laughs> I know you're like, yeah, there's a, I'm not mad that Hello Kitty doesn't have a mouth, but I, I think am. it is. I'm very mad. Hello Kitty. <laughs> I do think it's, it feels like this weird metaphor for the Asian women, right? There's something cute, fun to look at, doesn't talk back. I, I think somewhere in college, someone pointed out like, Hello Kitty doesn't have a mouth. Today's guest is a comedian, performance artist, writer, and actor. She's the creator of Wong Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Wong Street Journal, Christina Wong for Public Office, and her latest, Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord, which recently was presented at the New York Theatre Workshop. She uses satire to highlight depression, inequity, and fetishism. She manages to bring challenging subjects to light with humor and creativity and demonstrates that the arts can be a way to amplify issues and make changes in the world. She ran for public office in Koreatown, Los Angeles, and holds the seat for Neighborhood Council. Please welcome this totally unique and very special <laughs> artist, Christina Wong. Christina Wong, to stage, please. Christina? Can you join us on stage? Hello. <laughs> Hello. I'm so excited to have you here. That's honest to God. I was like, oh, oh, let me look her up. And then it just became hours upon hours. And I got to tell you, what impressed me the most is that in whatever forum you're in, you're always authentically you, but you're able to shape what you're putting out there to touch the audience you're with. 
And I think that's a superpower. Yes, I will will marry you. I will marry you. Yes. (laughs) You know, it occurred to me too, and the way I was going to word it was that you seem to be able to have a distinction between the character Christina Wong and the private Christina Wong. And you seem to be able to balance that. (laughs) That took a while. Um, Yeah, my my earliest show where I very much played a version of myself. um, uh, Wong, which are my shows? Wong flew over the cuckoo's nest, yeah. where I was trying to tackle depression and suicide among Asian American women. I um, I play like a character named Christina Wong who's in denial that she might be depressed, but she's dead set on making this show about other people outside the Wong family. And I, that was very hard to tour on and off for eight years. Um, one because shows should not tour that long, especially solo mm-hmm. shows, because your story your your story moves on. Um, yeah, my narrative was sort of frozen in time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was that was really hard. And I finally was like, I have to just say that it's a character. Okay. And that freed up so much. Yeah. Was that because of self-preservation? Self-preservation, but also like people talking to me after the show, like it was a weird continuation of the show. And um, or that that and, and there's there's a lot of things in in theater that we like we sort of shift. Uh, it's not that I'm out there, but it's like lying to people, but, but, you know, there's a lot that that's, that shifted for narrative sake, right? Like, I don't want to play this out as it really played out, but, but, but I think also people felt like they had a certain license to ask very invasive questions or things like that. Uh, And and I, and I felt an obligation to answer them because I was like, well, I'm I'm supposed to be this good person that, that is uh, community-based and here to support them and, and whatever. And so I I had, it was very hard to have boundaries. Especially if you're presenting or tackling really deep, deep issues, then you're putting it out there. And as, you know, artists that do book shows, there's that fourth wall, you present the story, and then you get to sort of um, detach yourself from it. But if your performative art is um, taken from a lot of what's happening in the world and happening in your personal world, then do you feel the need after the show to then still connect with your audience? I, well, I would say early in my career, I had this weird guilt around, um, oh no, they're paying all this money. The school's paying all this money for me to be here. I better give them all of myself, even if I'm not happy with how much I'm giving them. And, or, um, oh man, people drove across town. I need to just like whatever they want to hear. I should give it to them. I should thank each one person individually. And, uh, I was so taxed and, and yeah. now it's getting to a, like, I, I, I received mostly good feedback from this recent show in New York, but I did get this one email that sort of misunderstood once, at least my intentions is one second of the show. And I just was like, I'm just not going to write back. I just can't engage with everybody. You know, I can't micromanage everybody's um, impressions of what they think they saw after the show. Yeah. Were you, were you raised in a public service kind of household? Were you, did your parents instill that in you somehow? Because you seemed so much to want to be like bring community together and be a part of things and make, make the world better for people who don't have voices or whose voices are maybe not heard. No, I wasn't. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think that's probably what pushed me to it. My, my, I think I was very much raised and I think my parents have shifted over the years, but very much to look at bottom line economics of, of stuff. And like, what's the point of doing this if you're not going to do it for a living? Or what's the point of yeah. majoring in this? Like, and that was sort of more how I was raised. And it was so ugly and frustrating and, and not happy making. I think that's what sort of dr- drove me to, um, 
what I do now uh, in terms of wanting to seek out community and make community and create experiences that are more meaningful <laughs> than like get a job, be happy. And has you that know? changed your parents' view of things? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I feel like most of my most honest conversations with my parents happen with them watching my shows. The auntie sewing squad that you have. Yes. And I think yeah. your mom became a very big and integral Huge. part of that, right? Yeah. So she, so I started the auntie sewing squad and uh, which was a sewing group in the pandemic um, to sew masks. If we can just go back to less than two years ago and her memories no one wants to, but, <laughs> but, you know, this idea of wearing masks in public to cover your face was completely foreign. It was really difficult to figure out where to get things when everything shut down and even getting the materials to make the masks were pretty much impossible. Um, so I started a sewing group called auntie sewing squad because I sew my set pieces and props. And, um, I also very naively offered to the internet, if you need a mask, I, I can help you. We ended up by the end of our 17 month long life, which is a very long life for a sewing group, um, making 350,000 masks, but it also expanded into full on relief work. We were doing, uh, vans headed to the Navajo nation. We were, um, we did coat drives for standing rock. We were rerouting hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical equipment and hygiene supplies. Uh, we're still supporting these communities, just not with, with the actual physical sewing of masks at this point, we had to stop 17 months into it because we were just like, this is crazy. These corporate made masks are here. They need to share them. This cannot fall on us continually cutting. And sewing. like, wow, we appreciate having that connection to these communities. Um, it, you know, it was, it was getting really outrageous. And so anyway, my mother, um, who's, who sews, I kind of yanked her into helping me. She recruited like a bunch of her retired friends. I think it's really cool because it's like, she's not really a radical. She might not even be progressive, <laughs> but like, but this was the closest I could get her to understanding my politics and participating in a piece of mine. But in terms of what, as we began to look at the communities that needed the masks the most, they were all vulnerable communities, communities of color, communities that had borne the systemic, the brunt of systemic racism, you know, went from being a very like all health matters moment to like a very political thing. And masks, mm -hmm. I did not think were going to be politicized at all. I don't, I don't know if anyone saw that coming. <laughs> and I was like, how did this, like, I really went into this going, this is the most patriotic thing I've ever done for my fellow Americans. This is the most bipartisan thing I've ever done. And, and somehow I still managed to step in the middle of a culture war by mm. sewing masks. So now you've spun this experience into a book and a play that just closed off Broadway called Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord. Will you tell us a little bit about how that all began? It went from a, like, I literally in the first 10 days of me sewing a mask on my Hello Kitty sewing machine. March 20th, I sewed my first mask. I make a naive offer to the internet. Four days in, I am inundated with requests that I can't keep up with. I start a Facebook group, mostly as a way to casually add people who I knew were sewing. And if they had extra masks, maybe they could help me. But I ended up coordinating all the stuff and trying to get supplies to people because people who are willing to help don't have supplies or don't know where to send things or haven't sewn in a while. So it just kept ballooning and ballooning and snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. It, in those 10 days from March 20th to the, to like the start of April, I had bolts of fabric that was being donated coming in and out of my house. Like it would come into my house. I would tear off yards, hand it off to strangers in the street uh, who were my aunties, basically uh, hunting down sources for elastic, trying to hunt down people who could cut fabric. Just, it was 
so crazy. And I, I just felt witnessed this feeling so close to the pandemic. So some of the stories I tell, even within the show is there's a hospital in LA that needed elastic because the N95 masks that they were sent were so the, the elastic was so brittle and broken that doctors was, were using tourniquet ties to keep the masks on their faces. Like the missing link to their life and death was literally on my floor. Cause I bought out in the garment district to get all, you know, the last spools of elastic. And, and, and like, I, I think this is what pissed me off so much is like, when people just sort of would be like, can I order a mask? And can I, I order certain colors? I'm like, you can't pick. <laughs> this is not, this is not Etsy. I have no time to deal. And I'm not trying to make any money off of this. I'm trying to get us past this. so I can go back on tour. You know, like that, that was really the motive, but it was just like it, within the span of about 30, I, I think I did my first iteration of this show on zoom about 40 days later or 35 days later. And I, at that point, it was like, <laughs> I, I had just seen the pa- the pandemic from this the point of view of someone who was literally like a soldier conquering it head on and like feeling like I was risking my life when I was going to the post office but also getting some of the most terrifying requests in my inbox and how do you say no to people who tell you they're afraid they're going to die you know and and my friends who weren't sewing were like Christina you can just you can just walk away at any moment i'm like you try walking away from people who are literally like, where's my mask? Where's my mask? And like every day it felt like I was playing God because it's not like I was sitting on an infinite number of masks that just dole out, right? Like every time I heard a ping on my, my phone, it was like, oh God, oh God, here's another one. And it was like trying to decide who gets this? Is it the homeless shelter that already has had an outbreak? Is it a nurse that's going to see COVID patients? Like I, it was so overwhelming. And so basically the show was just like very scrappy on Zoom, just sort of me sort of like reenacting what the what this sort of empire that sort of unfolded, a no profit empire that unfolded in the first month of it. And and, and, a, and a joke really, the sweatshop overlord thing, um, that sort of unfolded from a uh uh from from me noticing that all my first volunteers were Asian women. We are hmm. currently sort of, we like currently and then we're sort of the face of the enemy because everyone was mad at all things Chinese or Asian for bringing in the virus and taking out their aggression, like right. quite literally on us. And, um, and a lot of our parents and grandparents did garment work as a rite of passage to America. And so here I am for the first time in my life, like trying to run basically a, a pandemic sweatshop. And this is not to dismiss the real labor issues that sweatshop workers all over the world, including America, deal with. So basically, yeah, every time I got an invite to do this performance on Zoom, I just wrote up into the moment that we were in the pandemic. So there was no real arc. like, <laughs> and, and it was also you know, the backdrop was my house. I wasn't trying to like, you know, some people would do Zoom shows and they would drop a curtain or mm-hmm. something. It was like, no, you see the pile of crap in my house. You see my sewing machine. Um, I, I basically put my laptop on a cu- couple Tupperwares on a rolly chair and I'm just staring it around the house, screaming into the computer. And um, and New York Theater Workshop pivoted to an online season in the pandemic. They invited, I think, over 20 artists to just present something. And, um, and it wasn't like I was working feverishly on this with it. Like I had thought, well, there's probably a show in here because, because what I feel like I'm witnessing, I don't think is everybody's experience. It just was becoming so ridiculous. I'm telling you to, at the, at the end of this, I, we were getting requests from the actual government to send them masks. And, and that's when I was like, 
It's okay. unbelievable. Now I'm in a cuckoo land. Was this the tinder for you to go into politics? I know your your humor and your art form always represents, um, you know, uh, a political voice. A, and, a moment that's happening. Voice, a race voice. But was this the thing that said, now I'm going from being political to getting into politics? So I that was actually my last show that I was set to tour as Christina Wong for Public Office. I was all set to tour it. And then the pandemic happened. I still managed to pivot it to Zoom. But basically... When a certain last president took office, who was a failed reality TV star, a lot of what felt clear about the moment and what I had to offer the world as a satirist was politicians and artists had switched jobs. And artists used to be the ones who made the satire and the spectacle and the shock Uh -uh. show us how crazy the world is. But now politicians are doing it. And I'm especially in the pandemic. Uh, witnessed a lot of, at least the comedians who I really respect, taking the space for quiet, for mourning, for grieving, for like putting the news in perspective in a way that we can grasp. And and so uh, basically, uh, I'm trying to think what year I ran, 2019 or 20, I think I woke up one morning in 2017 or something and was like, after having taken a few stabs at trying to write plays about a current moment and none of them made sense. Cause it was like, why do people need to go into theater to hear, isn't the world crazy? Like we know it, we're living it. <laughs> so what does theater have to offer? I was like, okay, I'm going to run for office and that's going to be my new piece. And so basically I'll create a, a, a campaign rally. I was really interested in the theatrics of campaigns. Mm. I mean, that's really a solo show. If you, if you think about how this politician introduced, they, 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 they work with, um, coaches and people to craft their story and find those details. Right. Like Elizabeth Warren talks about the, her mother applying for a job and wearing that dress. And, and Kamala Harris was that little girl on the bus. That little girl was me, right? This is, this is storytelling, right? This yes. is, these are crafted details. And it's not that different than what we do as theater artists. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to make a, a rally, but it will be about how I ran for office but I will actually go through the experience of running for office. I looked into running for, you know, everything from mayor to Senator. It's very expensive. And I'm like, this is, this is a very, that would be a very expensive research process um, to run for those. But what uh, doesn't cost any money to register to, to run for is neighborhood council because it doesn't pay. Um, <laughs> it's like you basically have to pay a, re- a, a, reg- a filing fee, which is a certain percentage of the, first year salary of the position. So if there's no salary, there's no registration fee. There's no filing fee. So I ran, I won with 72 votes. If you count the vote I cast for myself, I ran for neighborhood <laughs> council. Uh, so I basically am subdistrict five rep, which is basically the half square mile I live in, in, in Koreatown. I attend meetings once a month, but I was able to um, sort of get a, a, a little local view of of government and change in the world and how frustrating it is. I will tell you now that that is considered my old show and my new show, (laughs) and yet it's only two years old. um, I got more done as running a mutual aid group. I got more done running the auntie sewing squad. I mean, mind you, most of what we did was a band aid to help people than I have as an actual elected official. Um, I'm mostly mired in bureaucracy and waiting for meetings to reach quorum. Whereas like mutual aid is a little bit like anarchy, but good anarchy in the sense that you don't have to like wait for a board to approve things. It's like Mm -hmm. you have this pot of resources 
and you have to strategize how to best send them to where they need to go immediately and don't have to wait for a ton of permission or file stuff with the city and just go, 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 go. So, so that's sort of what the, what the motivation from that is. I, I will say people are like, wow, you're such a leader. They'll say that with me being the overlord of the auntie sewing squad. And I'm like, I'm kind of stunned. Yeah. Like I've never seen myself step up like this. The way I just sort of reacted to this pandemic was I thought we were all going to die. I had always thought, you know, in this sort of uh, rapture moment that I was going to be the one, you know, fighting everyone with a pipe and stealing and being a pirate. But I was like, wow, this is weird. This is weird that this is me. What I find so um, amazing is that you jumped into action, like you said, March 20th, where people were still, you know, we were reeling. You were making the mask. You went on YouTube to debunk the racism that was circling Chinese virus. Yeah. You were so vocal and so present. And it does take a certain personality. And did you always recognize injustice? Well, no, because, okay, so there's a few things. I lived through 9-11 and the 2008 recession. And both times I panicked, freaked out felt sorry for myself, thought, oh my God, my life is over as an artist. I can't make any work anymore. Da, da, da. And, and I was like, oh, here we go again. And I thought, okay, why don't I try something different? So I just sort of asked myself, what power do I have in this situation? There's got to be a way to support people in this moment. And, and, and so I just started from there. And, and I also, like, I was living with a lot of guilt. Like we were deemed non-essential artists were deemed non-essential workers. Mm, yeah. First thing to be cut was like, all right, no theater, right? <laughs> no gatherings. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. And no one needs like satirical comedy right now. So this was a new thing for me was, was trying to be brave and supportive as opposed to freaking out and screaming. And I, I do recommend to everybody to try that next time around. And a lot of our aunties, it was like for them, it was the first time they had a very concrete way to be of support. And I think it really helped them survive this moment and to have this whole community of people who are also willing to be brave, to at least feel that we could do something than just clutch our pearls and mm -hmm. scream. Mm -hmm. You know, that great quote, great stories happen to the people who can tell them. And that's, ah, that's what I, I think of. That. Yeah, I, I, I think it might be Ira Glass who said it, but I'm not positive. It's great stories happen to the people who can tell them. And you seem like, one of those people where life, everything in life, you see as this narrative and this story and you shape it into something. And I just think I'm dying to see some of your shows on stage now. There's some interest in touring it, but like, I, it's funny. Theater used to be this immediate response. Now I'm like, it has to be sort of the timeless response. Right. Then it's all, <laughs> and like the way seasons are scheduled, I'm like, no, this show needs to go right now. I know you want to bring me in 2023, but I need it to go right now. Cause I don't know what next disaster is going to happen this year. Yeah, I'm right. going to need to start that, writing something because yeah. some other great story is going to happen to me real yeah. soon. You keep mentioning touring which uh, a lot of people either have a love-hate relationship with. I'd love to know, it sounds like you tour quite a bit. Do you also tour I, Uganda? I did my research for the Wong Street Journal in Uganda. Basically, I was so burnt out touring Wong Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that I opted to like just try something completely different. I tried to make two new shows and I was like, mining the pain of my past sucks. I don't, <laughs> I don't. And I think that was, that's sort of like an instinct that maybe younger 
our artists early in their career do, because like, mm-hmm. what kind of, what do you have to draw from, but what you've lived and what you're working through. Right. And, and this is not to say that I'm above working through pain. It was just beginning to hurt me a lot to, to relive that and represent it night after night. Well, it's what and, you said earlier that, that, that phase had its place and now you've moved on to something else. And by keep doing it, you just keep reliving us. Yeah. Place and it wasn't growing. Yeah, it was not growing. And, uh, and so I, it was like, you know, I'm going to do something. I, I, I had stayed in LA after college and, and I was like, I never had like a Peace Corps experience or a teach English in Japan experience. And what if I volunteer for a microloan organization in Uganda and do a show about that? Like, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was quite naive. So I ended up going to Uganda and volunteering with, um, volunteer action network, which offers microloans just to, to women. Um, and I, a lot of that actually has informed how I run anti sewing squad, but the crazier story was my second day there. I met these rappers in the street and realized they were rappers. They were just at a food stand and we were just talking and joking and they invite me into what looks like a dark shack. I know this sounds like a terrible story, but it's a music, <laughs> it's a music, it was a music studio. And we just started recording a rap album, which became a hit rap album in that region. Was that a skill that you had before? No. Well, I had just, I had actually finished the improv series at Upright Citizens Brigade. And so I had like, I've been doing a lot of rhyming kind of exercises. I was much better at it a few years ago, but I was like, you know, here I, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to say, no, I can't. I'm just, here's an invite. Let's do it. So it's not that I toured Uganda. I had a creative generative experience in Uganda, went back to make music videos. <laughs> you want to hear some of my rap? I can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Here we go. Your boys, the time has come to drop down to your knees, dethrone yourselves and crown the matriarchy. No more reign of your terror. A new queen has come. Defeating sexism will be the first order done. Yes. Respect for all people. That's the new national song. And if you don't know the lyrics, call me Christina Wong. Yes. <laughs> That's what I wrote in a little shack in Uganda. <laughs> Who else says yes to two guys on the side of the road in Uganda? Oh, and goes it was a like five shack guys. I don't okay. know what I was thinking. It was like, okay. <laughs> I guess so in thinking about like auntie sewing squad, like coming from understanding the, the, how we've come to look at, I say we as America and how we've like framed Africa as like needing charity. Everyone's barefoot. No, there are no yeah. colleges. Like, you know, like these, these totally backwards, totally wrong pictures, but, but also how we like, you know, maybe we grew up watching save the children commercials and we assume everyone needs our old clothes and our old socks. And it's unfortunately like some of these countries have taken so much unwearable stuff. It's just like polluted it's like just turned Africa into a, it's like parts well, of Africa into a big land. But not only I mean, that, it goes deeper because when we send all of those used things there, what it yes, does is destabilize their own community exactly. for build, making their own clothes, making their own cloth, and we put them all out of business. So we actually course, destabilize. Yeah. But this is but, something we were thinking about a lot as Auntie Sewing Squad, right? Like, and we try to do a we 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 would only try to offer support as it was asked for us. So we're not like going. We think you need this. Like we we asked we would ask these communities like what exactly they need and and try to meet it. Um, you know, but but also trust their organizers and trust that 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 they are doing their own work on the ground. They're not a bunch of helpless people. 
like waiting for us to rescue them. And, and so that was, that was something we really, uh, like for some aunties, it was something that they were already familiar with. And and some, they were learning in this process, like that, that no, we're not going to make stuff out of our old underwear. Like, you know, there's a certain dignity and, you know, I know we're desperate for materials, but there's a certain dignity that we also need to, to have solidarity with, with our communities. Right. We're not taught. It's nothing about tossing them our garbage. Yeah, it's totally right. You use the phrase a perpetual foreigner with those that have lived here like yourself. And this is this is something Asian American academics describe of the Asian American experience is, is that yeah, is that Asians or Asian Americans are seen as perpetual foreigners, is that we, we could be here for generations and we're still read as you need to be grateful for being here or, or this assumption that we just showed up or that we <laughs> we we don't own the American identity as much as maybe a white person does, right? Well, that is specifically attributed to Asian Americans. Oh, completely. Do you think that any network is racing to produce the the Wong Street Journal about how I made a rap album in Uganda? Like they're still working on the like, Asians just arrived to America and they're immigrants and look at this quirky immigrant family. Like they're still, we're, right. like, it feels like we're still at chapter one constantly. Right. And, and in, in terms of like stories about us falling in love <laughs> and just having the regular human nuanced experiences are still far, the, the, we see more of them, especially in the last few years. But, you know, and, and if, if it does exist, it's like a big deal. Look, there's an Asian story about people falling in love. So this mm-hmm. illusion, right, that, that, that we didn't build this country, that we keep just showing up. Like, no, we've been here, um, but history has not recorded us. Media has not recorded us being here. And when media has recorded us being here, we play the part of the foreigner, right? Or, or the person in the background. So this is part of this constant, you know, violence that hopefully we can address and shift. Um, but it's, yeah. And this is where I feel like as, as someone who's an elected official, it's a combination of public policy, but also culture shifting the way people think and sort of normalizing in uh, our humanity <laughs> so that people will vote and advocate uh, for our humanity. Will you tell me the story about the quilt? Yes. Okay. So the, so the aunties there by the end, there are about 800 over 800 of us, hard to count because some of them we call our feral aunties who, who weren't on Facebook, but we find ways to work with them, you know, <laughs> other ways, not all of them sewed. Some of them were cutting aunties. Some were yoga teaching aunties. Some were care aunties. I remember in the first few weeks, I really thought we were only going to be doing this for three weeks. And then it kept going and going and going. And we kept talking about this elusive retirement party that we would one day have where we'd all meet each other and hug. So we finally had our long um, anticipated retirement party on September 25th, 2021. It was really beautiful to see all these people who we've we've seen their tailoring, we've tasted their cooking and baking, maybe in the form of auntie care. And then the aunties unveiled this secret that they had been working on for for months, which was this quilt that they... um, that Auntie Sunny, like basically got aunties from all over the country to send in a seven by seven fabric square that represented their time in ASS. It's our acronym, ASS. And they presented to me, it was like a thank you quilt. And that becomes the last scene of the show. I was like, what the hell is the show? We're quite cynical and we're very angry at the government and stuff. But when that moment of generosity 
and love happen, it kind of brought me full circle to, to, to some of the better moments of this. Like I've never witnessed generosity the way I have through this group. I've never met, I, I don't, I would not have met a lot of these aunties in any other way. And I wouldn't have met with them with the, with the same respect that I did because they were willing to do this labor. I, I really learned the power of generosity and connecting through others and generosity. Um, and, and having that quilt gifted to me, so it's something I never requested or asked for, felt like a very significant story to share at the end of my show. This is giving away the ending, but we, but uh, as, the, as the audience leaves the theater, the actual quilt is displayed and lit up. It's very beautiful. Uh, it doesn't have all the work of all the aunties, but, but, but about 189 of them did contribute to it, which is significant when you think like how hard it is to get anything organized across something like Facebook. To me, it's such a beautiful image. It symbolizes the deeper meaning of everything that you accomplished. What seems like a small seven by seven square is really mm-hmm. a part of something huge and magnificent. Yeah. And you guys each did your seven by seven and created something so much more than a quilt, you know, the seven by seven of giving the seven by seven of connection, the seven by seven of, of what life is. It's such a beautiful symbol for the importance of Mm. what you did really just by almost by accident. Like, let me sew this and see if anybody needs one. There's your first square. And then before you know it, it's (laughs) just a quilt. Yes. And now it's time for the five questions. If you could go back to your teenage self, what advice would you give her? I'd give her the skincare regimen that I have now. I had a lot <laughs> of really bad acne. And then I so I used to take just straight up rubbing alcohol and like rub at my zits, which was terrible. But I, I now do like a serums didn't really exist then though. Serums, a witch hazel, a good moisturizer. Is there um, like a certain garment that holds so many memories to you that you will never get rid of it? Oh, wow. That's interesting. You know what I do have is I I won a speech, a national speech contest, and uh, I have a jacket from there that has pins from all the people from each of the 50 states pinned all over it. I still have that jacket. Yeah. Mm. Okay. If you could have any ability superpower or just a regular old ability, what would it be? The ability to clean and organize my own house mm. quickly. Like, quickly. That's the caveat. Mess. Quickly. <laughs> uh, are you a thin, thick, or deep dish pizza crust? And what's on your pizza? Um, I don't think I'm thin. So I think it's a, I think it's, it's thick, but not deep. Um, I don't eat meat. So it's usually, I like a good white pizza or pesto. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's the last one. It's the biggie. If you were a nail polish color, what color would you be? And what would the cheeky little name be? Oh, I keep thinking silver right now. And it would be like, it's called second place. but i also do a character called fanny wong former miss chinatown second runner-up so maybe i'm challenging channeling this like second best thing you are a deep well we feel super lucky oh we really appreciate it you're you're fantastic well thank you so much you too it's nice to meet you okay take care bye-bye coming up next what struck a chord with us right after this break 
Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that gives you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages, and love where you are now. Stages podcast is sponsored by Simply Earth. I love essential oils. I use them a lot, but I was always making up recipes on my own because I really wasn't an expert and I didn't know what to do with certain oils. So they just ended up sitting on my shelf. Until now, I have discovered Simply Earth. Simply Earth essential oil recipe box helps you clarify what oils to use. And they help me make my home toxin free. Your essential oil recipe box comes with four pure essential oils, six recipes, lots of fun extras, and all for $39. And when you subscribe, you'll get a big bonus box full of all kinds of natural goodies. Using essential oils to promote wellness does not have to be confusing. And right now, Simply Earth has a special for Stages cast members. You'll get a free 80 milliliter diffuser with the code STAGES. So log on to simplyearth.com STAGES. Get your free diffuser and start making your home and your life toxin-free. Thank you, Simply Earth, for supporting Stages Podcast. She's so courageous. That's a word that kept coming because, you know, as artists, we always put ourselves in, in people's shoes, or we try to. And I think I would have pulled out whether that uh, being a comedian, well, stand up comedians to me, that is probably the scariest thing. I'm talking even before death, standing up on a stage and putting comedy out there is probably my highest fear. So there's that. Then there's the putting yourself out there in a very um, uh, highly volatile political space, which Mm -hmm. that's what fuels her. And that's, I think, what makes her art form so potent and important. Mm -hmm. And then there's just this idea of the backlash and the, the, the hate that comes through social media. I mean, I, I try to speak out, um, on my platforms, but I'm always very, uh, aware of what I'm saying, how this could be interpreted. It's not necessarily off the cuff, right? It's not, uh, crafted in a way that I have a team that tells me what I should put out there. And it's coming from my heart, but I sit on those words and I try to figure out exactly so that my ideas come through, but without, um, upsetting as many people as I can. And that, that, that. there's this whole list of things and she gets out there and she speaks her mind. Mm. It is of course crafted. It is of course artistic, but then to know what could be on the other end of that and to still face that with integrity and continuing on with your art. Yeah. Yes. Courageous. I mean, the, the life of a performer and a writer and it's so ambiguous. Anyway, it's, it's the ambiguity that I struggle with, with and not knowing where your next paycheck comes from and not knowing where your next job comes from. But she's doing all of that 
in this sea of turmoil that she's creating to create awareness. And I I just find her really uh, courageous. I would not have the courage to do that. You know, what was interesting to me too, is when she was talking about politicians and entertainers and how it's almost like it has been flipped. I never thought about it. I thought our, uh, last president, him coming from entertainment was a bit of a, a singular type of episode. But well, no, Reagan. That's true. And But even just the attributes of our politicians now and yeah. the way that they uh, sort of pose everything in a real heightened theatrical way instead of just reporting their truths, reporting the facts, reporting what they want to do for the community or the the states at large. It really has a performative aspect to it. And she's right. Like the entertainers are now politicians speaking about social change. And our politicians are now entertainers. The 24-hour news cycle. Totally. That is not news. Yeah. Yeah. And she just seems to see everything like off to a different angle. She never, she doesn't look at anything straight on. Everything's like off to this little side angle where you're kind of peeking in from the side and you go, oh yeah. And every two or three minutes, I was like, I had an aha moment. The other thing that she said that I thought was, um, was really, really important. And we just kind of glossed over it. But when she said, you have to let people ask for the help. I think that's even on a micro level, not just on the grand level that she was talking about what we do with Africa and other developing nations, but in your life on an everyday basis, instead of just jumping in to do what you think is best to help somebody, having them ask, because then when you give the gesture, it's actually appreciated because they had to find the humility to ask. They had to admit to themselves that they need the help, which makes them appreciate and respect what, what help you've given in any form. Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing too. I had an incredible pastor at an Episcopal church um, years ago. He's still a, an important figure in my life. Father Poppy. Hello, Father Poppy. But he, in one sermon said, I just want to say this. I feel compelled to say this, that unsolicited advice is criticism. Whether you think you're helping or not, If it is unsolicited, that means you're witnessing something that you feel isn't right for you or them, and you feel compelled to tell them, but they haven't opened that up to you. So it may come from the best of intentions, but it's still hurtful and it's still criticism. Oh, and, but even more importantly, when you just give your unsolicited advice, it can't go in. They can't hear it until a person is ready to say, what do you think? And really hear it. Um, they, they can't hear it. They're just going to, it's going to be like talking to a brick wall. All right, my friend, this was so fun. It was so fun. I, what a pleasant surprise. Okay. I love you. Thank you. Love you too. See you. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.